Quick plug. Don't forget to take the NPR One app with you on your holiday travels. And keep up with the best from public radio and beyond, including all of your favorite podcasts. One of those podcasts should be Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It is the NPR News Quiz. Host Peter Sagal and panelists like Alonzo Bowden, PJ O'Rourke, and Paula Poundstone say things on the radio that most people just shout at the radio. You can find Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcast. All right, here's the show. It's the NPR Politics Podcast here to round up the week's political news, including President-elect Trump calling out individual businesses for praise and scorn, his latest cabinet picks, and the fake news fallout at a pizza shop right here in Washington, D.C. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Scott Detrow. I covered the campaign this year. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Scott Horsley, White House reporter. Okay, so we have two Scots here today and uh, two women who have lost their voices. Let's try this. Uh, Scott Horsley. Horsley. No, no, no. no. <laughs> uh, say a little bit more for the people back at home, Scott. Uh, I'm a little horse myself. <laughs> and, and Scott Detrow. I'm Scott Detrow. Uh, Scott Horsley and I are actually dressed very similar today. We both have ties on and kind of the sleeves half rolled up on our shirts. But there are important differences, such as the fact that I have a beagle and Scott Horsley has two black labs, I believe. Mm, labby, labby mutts, yeah. Okay, uh-huh. okay. so that's a difference. Key distinction. I had a beagle when I was a kid, though. Ah. My first dog was a beagle. Boots. 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 Now that's I'll a... never tell you two apart. <laughs> I... <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> okay, Scott has now made two animal noises, and we're like 30 seconds into the podcast. It's a good podcast already. Scott, the other Scott has some exciting news. You're going to be moving to a new beat here at NPR, aren't you? That's right. I am going to be covering Congress. I actually started this week. This is my first week covering Congress. I'm going to be hanging out with Sue Davis and Elsa Chang up there. It's kind of exciting. And like many members of Congress who just rove the hallways. And like thousands of people who are all walking really fast in all different directions. It's it's disorienting. And some of them even know where they're going. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's get things started for real now. Our usual disclaimer, we can't talk about everything that happened in a given week. So make sure you're keeping up with more of NPR's political coverage at NPR.org or on the NPR One app. That said, let's talk first about something Donald Trump has been doing that could have an even bigger impact if he continues to do it as president. And that is his penchant for calling out specific businesses and countries and even people on, of course, Twitter. So let's start with the business stuff. This week, Trump tweeted, quote, Boeing is building a brand new 747 Air Force One for future presidents, but costs are out of control. More than four billion dollars. Cancel order exclamation point. Now, initially, Boeing stock went down, but then it recovered. What is the real story on Air Force One? The existing there's two there are two 747s right now that serve the function of Air Force One. And they are nearing the end of their 30-year lifespan. So the Air Force and Boeing are in the early stages of developing some new planes to replace the existing 747s, probably very late in 2024. 
And we don't really know what they're going to cost, but the Air Force says thus far they've budgeted something north of $2 billion for research and development and testing as they kind of put together the specs for these new planes. Uh, And it's possible that they could wind up costing in the neighborhood of $4 billion for two copies. You have to remember, these are very special, customized jet airplanes. They are a flying White House. They are hardened against uh, electromagnetic waves from a nuclear blast. Yeah, the crazy thing is they have to be designed to survive a nuclear blast. Uh My understanding is there's an escape pod based on my watching the movie Air Force One with Harrison Ford. (laughs) There you go. So that's... Take that as the gospel right there. Uh, the escape pod, not for the reporters who travel on Air Force One, as I understand no, it. No, no, no. We would go down with the plane. They, again, they're in the early stages. So the $4 billion figure uh, is a little speculative, but perhaps in the right ballpark. Mm-hmm. And you've got Donald Trump saying uh, he wants to jawbone that cost down. But the question is, why Why did Trump decide to tweet about this? Now, there's like, you know, did he just out of nowhere decide to uh, talk about wasteful spending? We can't be sure Uh, But one potential thing that has been floated is there was an article in the Chicago Tribune that morning uh, where the CEO of Boeing, Muhlenberg, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, expressed doubts about Trump's trade policy. He talked about how one third of Boeing's 737s last year went to China and he doesn't want trade with China to be hurt because that would hurt his company. We should say Trump said on the Today Show he didn't read the Chicago Tribune article. In any case, this is kind of a pattern uh, that we've seen from this president. He is not shy about singling out companies either for praise if he likes what they're doing or for browbeating if he doesn't. We've seen him target Ford about whether they're going to relocate a uh, production line to Mexico. Of course, he he targeted the carrier company about their plans to relocate jobs to Mexico and then celebrated the company when they decided to keep some of those jobs here. Now he's also gone after uh, a union official that represents those carrier workers who challenged Donald Trump for overstating just how many jobs he'd managed to keep in Indianapolis. And after the union leader uh, said that Donald Trump didn't have his facts straight, Donald Trump lit up the Twitter about him. Right. And, and we should be clear, Donald Trump initially said that it was, what, around a thousand jobs that... Uh, that would be saved. That would be saved. It's uh, Carrier has confirmed it was closer to 800. But, but to balance this out, we should talk about SoftBank, um, which Donald Trump brought up this week once again on Twitter. Uh, he, he met with the CEO of SoftBank, which is a Japanese telecommunications firm. Uh, Masayoshi San is his name. Uh, Trump tweeted that uh, Mr. Son said his company was going to invest $50 billion in the U.S., uh, which would create 50,000 jobs. And Trump added, uh, Mr. Son said he would not have done this uh, were Trump not elected. But it was already in the works. Well, the, so what What it was, as Wall Street Journal Jackie Wong, she reported this, that SoftBank, yes, had before already announced what they were calling a vision fund a $100 billion tech fund, a lot of which probably would have gone to the U.S. anyway. We don't know exactly how much. But yeah, I mean, it's really hard for Trump to exactly claim this as his victory and his victory alone. A lot of business people are a little nonplussed by this, especially coming from a Republican president. Republican orthodoxy is that the government should be generally hands-off when it comes to business or at least kind of treat businesses with an arm's-length distance. And now you have the the future commander-in-chief who's uh, being very direct, very personal, very up close, and picking winners and losers. Yeah, know, that's so. what I was going to say. For years, mm-hmm. there's been this complaint that, oh, the Obama administration was picking winners and losers, and we shouldn't have the government picking winners and losers. And maybe Donald Trump still sees himself as a businessman and not as an arm of the government, but he is the biggest, will be the the biggest representation of the United States government. 
And at the moment, he seems to be picking winners and losers. Mm -hmm. And other high-profile Republicans clearly do not like this approach, but they don't dislike it enough to to criticize it yet. So like the the same thing, Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell were kind of doing the same thing when they were asked several times this week, you know, should there be these big tariffs on companies moving jobs overseas? And their response was, you know, what would really keep companies here overhauling the entire tax code. That's what we should do. It's like, well, what about the thing I asked you about? Overhaul the tax code. Welcome to covering Congress, (laughs) Scott Detrow. It's going to be awesome. I'm excited. Okay, let's move on and do another in our series of Trump cabinet lightning rounds. Uh, Donald Trump announced a number of cabinet picks this week, including Dr. Ben Carson, who is Trump's pick to run the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Right. So as our listeners may remember, uh, Ben Carson, of course, was a candidate for the Republican nomination for president this year. He is also a retired and very famous neurosurgeon. Uh, Now, what's interesting about this is that last month, the top Carson aide, Armstrong Williams, had told The Hill that Carson wasn't even interested in being in in the cabinet because, uh, quote, quote, because, quote, Dr. Carson feels he has no government experience. He's never run a federal agency. The last thing he would want to do is take a position that could cripple the presidency. Well, he's apparently pulled a 180 on this. One thing that was really interesting to me uh, as this story rolled out is that there was this immediate Republican talking point that, well, Ben Carson grew up in public housing, so he knows urban life and he knows, he, you know, he has this experience of having lived in it. He didn't live right. in public housing. Um, mm-hmm. It was not true. And of course, Ben Carson really does not have any kind of a background, or at least a professional background in uh, housing and urban development. So uh, this should be interesting. The main qualification Ben Carson brings to this job is his inspiring personal story. He grew up poor in Detroit, albeit not in public housing, but he grew up in a poor family in an urban environment. And, of course, he went off to get a full scholarship at Yale University and went to medical school and had a, had a great career and has presented that as sort of a bootstraps approach to how to deal with urban poverty. Secretary at the same the time, urban though, urban. he has been uh, very critical of government safety net programs, including the kind of safety net programs that are administered by HUD, uh, saying they breed dependency. Yeah, and it, HUD is not one of the most high-profile federal agencies, but it is an important federal agency. It has tens of billions of dollars in its annual budget. It mm-hmm. supports rental housing for millions of people. It is usually a lower priority in Republican administrations uh, because they're just not—they don't have a constituency in the inner cities typically. But certainly, Ben Carson comes to this job with less experience even than your typical Republican HUD secretary. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving right along in this lightning round, Scott Pruitt for head of the Environmental Protection Agency. Scott Detrow. So if you're ever wondering if LinkedIn can help you get a job or not, this is a case where it might have. Uh, the Washington Post found Scott Pruitt's LinkedIn, and among the uh, attributes he lists for himself on his LinkedIn profile is advocate against the EPA's activist agenda. Now he might be in charge of it. Uh, so Scott Pruitt is the attorney general of Oklahoma, and he is one of several attorneys general. Wait, an attorney general has a LinkedIn page? You know, you never know. You never know <laughs> okay, when sorry. you're looking to move up in the world. Um Okay, he's Attorney General of Oklahoma. He's Attorney General of Oklahoma, and he is one of several attorneys general, almost all Republicans, who have really gone to war with the EPA over the course of the Obama administration. Um, Basically, almost every high-profile rule that the EPA has rolled out, you know, a rule to uh, lower methane leaks uh, in, in oil and gas drilling, 
a major rule to lower uh, carbon dioxide emissions from power plants. Um, A couple other things he uh, sued to block. So he was very active in federal courts filing lawsuits saying the EPA overstepped its bounds in this case. You know, the EPA didn't get the right congressional approval. And he and other attorneys general have had a lot of success at stalling or slowing down a lot of the EPA's mandates on this front. The environmental community is just shaking their heads at this appointment. Uh, You know, one critic said this is like putting an arsonist in charge of the fire department. And as Scott says, the EPA has been the principal weapon that the Obama administration used to advance their climate agenda. And even though Donald Trump was very critical throughout the campaign of that climate agenda, he had hinted in recent weeks since the election in an interview with the New York Times that he was maybe keeping an open mind about the responsibility of of greenhouse gases in in a changing climate. His daughter Ivanka had talked about wanting to make climate a signature issue. There were this high-profile meeting this week with both Ivanka Trump and Donald Trump and Al Gore, the evangelist for the threat posed by a changing climate. There were some who maybe held out hope, gosh, maybe Donald Trump is not going to reverse everything the Obama administration did to stop climate change. Well, this appointment says no, he well, is. He's going he's gonna, he's gonna to do exactly what he said he was going to do during the campaign. And the thing about the Obama administration and its efforts on climate change is almost all of that has been done through regulation. Because they couldn't right. get a yeah. cap and trade bill through Congress, even when they had a Democratic majority in the House and Senate. But these regulations, these agencies are really large. Uh, they're really complicated. And uh, Scott Pruitt, if he's uh, appointed, uh, can't walk in and just snap his fingers and rescind all these rules. That'll take a lot of time to do to work its way through the federal process. But, you know, just like any assignment at any job, you can prioritize it or not prioritize it. And if the the Trump administration comes in and they want to weaken or slow down these regulations, they'll be able to do that pretty quickly. We'll be watching for that. And now um, Andrew Pudzer has been picked for labor secretary. Now, NPR hasn't confirmed that yet, but it is widely being reported. Uh, Scott Horsley, what do you know about him? Pudzer is the CEO of uh uh, CKE restaurants. They run the Hardee's and Carl's Jr. fast food chains. Are he, they the same, Hardee's and Carl's Juniors? No, it's not like Best Foods and Hellman's mayonnaise. Okay, <laughs> just just sorry. Two different chains. They also run a smaller chain called the Green Burrito, uh, but they uh, <laughs> they do. They employ uh, directly and through their franchisees tens of thousands of mostly low-wage workers, not minimum wage workers for the most part, but low-wage workers. Uh, and Andrew Puzder has been. Uh, skeptical of measures to sharply increase the minimum wage and certainly any kind of federal increase in the minimum wage, Uh, although he has said states are certainly okay to raise their own minimum wages. Uh, A lot of uh, Carl's Jr. restaurants have been uh, investigated for wage violations and found to have committed wage violations, although to be fair, most of those restaurants were franchise operations, not company-owned restaurants. Uh, Just as the EPA was the vehicle for the Obama administration to carry out a lot of its environmental agenda, uh, the Labor Department has been really the home of some of the most ambitious efforts to boost the standard of living for, in particular, lower-wage workers in this country. One way the administration tried to do that was with a new rule that would have made millions more Americans eligible for overtime pay. That was just blocked, right? It was just blocked by a federal judge. The administration's appealed that, uh, but it's likely that the new administration may either drop that appeal or... Andrew Puzder, as Labor Secretary, would certainly be active in trying to undo it. Moving right along, Linda McMahon to lead the Small Business Administration. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. And Monday, Monday, Monday. Is that a pro wrestling thing? I thought it was a monster truck. Whatever. Okay, but the reason (laughs) her name sounds familiar. (laughs) 
okay. The reason her name sounds familiar is... Let's get ready to rumble. Let's get ready to stimulate business in America. Oh is because she is the co-founder of the <laughs> Pro Wrestling Enterprise World Wrestling Entertainment. Um, she's never held elective office, but she did run for uh, Senate from Connecticut as a Republican in 2010 and t- 2012. Spent a ton of money, but lost. Um, so... There's that. Um, she and she she now runs like a women's leadership uh, operation. Donald Trump like actually was on WWE like wrestling uh, several times. There's this one clip where he like I think he hits somebody with a chair and then he like climbs into the ring and then he shaves Vince McMahon's head. Is <laughs> well, yeah. I, have to, I think that you have to say that the 2016 presidential campaign sort of took on a lot of the trappings of a pro wrestling. Oh, it was very. Very WWE. Okay, next up, retired General James Mattis for Defense Secretary. Right, yeah, so Trump has really been talking him up, especially in his thank you tour speeches. Uh, Trump very much <laughs> enjoys using uh, General Mattis's nickname, Mad Dog Mattis. You can you can tell Trump really says that with Mad a lot of dog. he really says it with a lot of relish in these speeches. Now, Trump in the Trump has lately been calling him quote the closest thing we have to General George Patton. Mattis has spoken out about the Iran nuclear agreement, saying actually that tearing it up would hurt the U.S. Now, Donald Trump, of course, was very vocal about that Iran nuclear agreement on the on the campaign trail. And in Trump's New York Times interview, he said that he was really surprised when Mattis told him that he didn't support torture and he had to sort of like rethink it, maybe. Right. Yeah. Now, now, to be clear, uh, in order to confirm Mattis, Congress will have to uh, pass a waiver of a rule that there is that says that you have to be seven years out of active duty in the military in order to uh, serve as defense secretary. The idea being that you want a civilian to serve as defense secretary. Now, Mattis has been out since 2013. Uh, so which is not seven years. Right, which, which, though it feels like for it. those For those who do who know math, uh, <laughs> that is not seven years. But... Uh, so we'll have to see that happen first, should he uh, be confirmed. And another general, um, this isn't official yet, but again has been reported, retired General John Kelly for Secretary of Homeland Security. Scott Detrow? So John Kelly has a much different background than everybody else who served as Homeland Security Secretary in that he is yet another general that Donald Trump wants in his administration. Kelly is a Marine general, just like Mattis. He headed the Southern Command, which means he was in charge of South America, Central America, which means that he has had a lot of experience dealing with border issues, dealing with drug traffic that flows through South and Central America. These are things that Donald Trump really talked a lot about on the campaign trail and says he wants to try and eliminate as part of his uh, border security that he's pushing for. So uh, Kelly has a lot of experience in that area. He also has combat experience. And one thing that's interesting about Kelly is that he had a son who served in the military and was killed in combat in Afghanistan. Kelly continued to serve as a general after that, but has talked a lot about how that's changed his perspective and given him empathy for for other parents of soldiers who've had to go through similar things. Uh, Before we take our break, Donald Trump is continuing his thank you tour in select states this week. Uh, We have an annotated copy of his speech in North Carolina this week with fact checks up on our website now. If you want to see what Trump is discussing at these events, uh, check that out. And now it's time for a quick break. We'll be right back. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, United Health Group, who asks... 
how can we really improve healthcare? Bring back the house call? Open walk-in clinics in convenient places? Help more moms get prenatal care? Or use technology to find insights that lower healthcare costs? Maybe help doctors spend more time with patients, not paperwork? What if we did all of this and more? Because it's all connected to better care, and better care means better health. United Health Group, built for better health. Learn more at unitedhealthgroup.com. We're back, and let's talk about what cabinet-level positions Trump has yet to fill. The biggest one, which I feel like we've been talking about for weeks now, is Secretary of State. And for that one, the short list keeps getting longer. <laughs> That's right. Rex Tillerson, the head of Exxon, met with Donald Trump this week. Uh, he, he's certainly somebody who's traveled around the world uh, developing for energy resources. And Mitt Romney continues to be in the mix. I mean, uh, I talked before about Trump as an entertainer. I mean, I think Trump kind of clearly gets a sense this is the most high-profile pick and the more of a pageant he can have of people coming in and right. out and people wooing him. Yeah, and John Huntsman is another person on that list. He's the former Utah governor, ran for president in 2012, was uh, President Obama's first ambassador to China. Is that right? That's mm-hmm. right. Republican. Republican. Wealthy. Yeah. Father helped develop the clamshell container that Big Macs came in. Back before uh, styrofoam was not cool anymore. Turned out there was a lot of demand. <laughs> there was a lot of demand. Any other cabinet-level positions we're missing here? I don't think he's named an agriculture secretary yet. And uh, interior and energy are two interesting oh, things to keep an big, eye on. Right. Because, yeah, that has a lot on, on drilling policy, on federal land management, uh, a lot of issues that really change dramatically when it's a Republican or Democrat in, in, in charge of that administration. Now, I will say, as far as ag secretary goes... As an Iowan, I have to point this out, the current Ag Secretary, Tom Vilsack, a former governor of Iowa, now who Trump cannot pick for Ag Secretary is Terry Branstad. Why? Because he already picked him to be ambassador to China. So Iowa will continue to represent at the highest levels of government. That is all. Terry Branstad has a personal relationship with the Chinese president because uh, back when he was a a, a ag student, uh, the Chinese president, Xi, came to Iowa and spent some time studying. People Mm -hmm. just can't get enough of Iowa. Well, That's the part of this is that China can't get enough of Iowa's agricultural products. So I think that probably plays into this. A lot of Seems pork like and China sardines. can get enough of Donald Trump right now based <laughs> on some controversies that have kind of swollen up. So Maybe. Terry Branstead will be busy if that uh, oh, call sure. to Taiwan from Taiwan is any indication. All right, let's uh, talk about a story that unfolded close to us here in Washington, D.C. this week. A man armed with a rifle walked into a family pizza place in northwest D.C., It's called Comet Ping Pong. And this man walked in with a rifle because this pizza place was the subject of a crazy false Internet conspiracy, which claimed that Comet Ping Pong was connected to a child sex ring, which itself was connected to Hillary Clinton somehow. This came up right before the election. It was called Pizzagate. And it was Mm -hmm. mostly based on on misinterpreting emails. Heavily uh, it, misinterpreting it, yeah. emails. Yeah. Th- saying that, you know, when uh, Clinton uh, campaigned people in John Podesta's emails, which were leaked to WikiLeaks, um, they thought they were like talking in code, right? right? Like, yeah, oh, like pizzas pizza means child. And yeah. handkerchiefs. And they're actually, it, it's the, so, yeah. for, uh, n- uh, to plug a non-NPR podcast, to be honest, this the latest reply all has a very detailed uh, and somewhat upsetting uh, explanation of exactly what all is behind this. But I mean, some of these ideas were sort of hatched, uh, you know, on online boards like 4chan, uh, Reddit, that sort of thing. Uh, but it's some very heavy twisting of 
uh, of logos, of emails, of this, of that. It's it's very odd. And so this guy said he went there to, quote, self-investigate. He drove up from North Carolina. When he showed up, uh, police swarmed and apprehended him. Um, he did fire shots in the restaurant, but no one was hurt, thank goodness, because lots of kids go there and, you know, adult humans, too. Mm-hmm. And the remarkable thing is, even after all of that, uh, the son of Mike Flynn, General Mike Flynn, tweeted out again about Pizzagate in in sort of a serious way. Yeah, uh, this is it's confusing because they're both named Mike Flynn. This is the son of the incoming national security advisor um, who works as kind of a staffer for his dad and actually had a role in the transition team as his dad's schedule and things like that at first. uh Vice President like Mike Pence said that that the son Flynn had no role in the transition, but later on the the transition team said, well, he did have a role, and in fact, he's been fired because of all of the uh, the false information he's spreading online. I mean, I'm just going to start out maybe perhaps by stating the obvious here, but I mean, look, what what made this so interesting aside from the sensational nature of what, of course, we will add, perhaps unnecessarily, was an entirely untrue conspiracy theory, uh, is just that you know. Fake news was such a big topic throughout the election. There was a lot of talk about, you know, di- how much did it affect the election? How many votes did it or did it not sway? But what we have here is tangible evidence that fake news did something. It did something very dangerous. And I think that is why so many people have latched onto this, that, listen, this sort of stuff has consequences. It's fake news stepped off the Internet and into a real life pizza place. Yes, absolutely. The thing that's like stuck in my mind through all of this, obviously, there's like the really upsetting fact that somebody walked in a gun and fired shots because of stuff that started uh, tumbling online. Mm-hmm. But what's really like upsetting and worrisome to me is how off the rails this conspiracy theory was to begin with and how many people believed it. Like right. how many people, there a lot of people on the internet legitimately believed that Hillary Clinton was overseeing a child sex mm-hmm. ring, which is just so absurd, but just tells you how, you know, how much deep anger and distrust of of certain politicians there are, how segmented we've gotten, and how you can create your own reality based on what you want to read. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, to a certain degree, you could say that, um, you know, people believed it in part because they wanted to believe it. People were already very primed to be very angry at Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. OK, one more break. We will be right back with listener mail and can't let it go. Support for this podcast and the following message come from our sponsor, History Vault, the perfect gift for history buffs this holiday season. If you know someone who loves learning about the past through documentaries and specials, they need History Vault to stream hundreds of hours of videos exploring ancient Rome, presidential elections, military history, and everything in between. History Vault is the only place to watch History Channel content anytime you want, anywhere you are. There are no commercials and new videos are added every week. Visit historyvault.com politics to give the gift of classic history channel today. We are back. Thanks to composer John Rollis and Cass for that delightful holiday piano version of our theme song that you just heard. Okay, so sorry we haven't done listener questions in a little while, but we're going to get back into the habit, so keep them coming. You can write your questions or record them as a voice memo and send them to nprpolitics at npr.org. We do try to read everything that comes in, even if you don't get a response. First today, let's take a question from Betsy, who writes... 
I don't recall other president-elects going on thank-you tours or victory laps. Is it common? And who pays for the rallies? It is not common. Uh, we, Scott Horsley. We, uh, we went back at our collective memories and couldn't find another example of anyone doing quite uh, this kind of uh, triumphant tour to uh, some of the battleground states that helped to elect him. It appears that it is the Trump campaign uh, that is paying for the rallies, and they're being conducted more or less the same way that the campaign rallies were conducted before Election Day. We should say that there's no time limit on when you have to sort of fold up your campaign tent and go home. For example, Newt Gingrich's campaign from 2012 is still a going concern. Well, because he owes a lot of money. It, typically, they last because they're in debt and they're they're working to pay off their debt. But even if you uh, have a surplus, uh, as Donald Trump's campaign probably does and, and did at the last report, uh, you can you can continue to operate. Okay, here's another question from Kate here in Washington, D.C. She writes, Hey, y'all, I had a question about a Washington Post opinion article written recently by Harvard Law School professor Lawrence Lessig. When it comes to who becomes president, she writes, the article states that the Constitution gives the final say to the electors who could potentially cast their vote in opposition of their state on December 19th. Lessig says that idea is to have a final preventative measure to stop the people from choosing a catastrophic candidate as president. How far-fetched is this idea? Kate. Okay, we have gotten this question a lot. Um, She is not the only one. Uh, Danielle, do you have the answer? Right. I mean, if she's asking how far-fetched is it that there will be enough faithless electors that Donald Trump won't hit 270, it's very far-fetched. Now, listen, you've had a few electors sort of toy with this idea, you know, say that they won't. Actually, there was a very interesting interview that Steve Inskeep did on Morning Edition with Texas elector Art Cisneros. He isn't exactly going faithless. What he is doing is stepping down. Here's what he said. Voting for him would violate my conscience. But at the same time, I was elected on the basis of a pledge that I would support the nominee. So it's probably the best route if I resign. Somebody listening is surely saying... Well, you could have voted against Donald Trump, but instead you're resigning and being replaced by somebody who will cast the very same vote that you think is wrong. Correct. What do you say to them? Yeah. Um, Even in casting my vote opposed to Donald Trump, that was never going to change the results of the election. Donald Trump is going to be president. So this is purely somebody standing on their principles and their conscience. Right. So, I mean, what he's outlining there is that, you know, yes, these electors know that they are the the final people who choose. But first of all, I mean, he's saying that there's a moral problem. Like, even if you don't like the person that you are supposed to elect, well, maybe you also feel like you should represent the will of the state. But more importantly, let's get it. Who can flip? Now, according to Fair Vote, 29 states plus the District of Columbia, the electors are bound by state law to uh, vote for the person who voters have chosen in their states. You only have 21 states where electors apparently can flip. And 37 electors would have to flip to uh, bar Donald Trump from getting the presidency based on the Electoral College. Now, aside from that, here's the thing. A lot of these are partisan people. Like, they are chosen by state party people. They, They're probably perfectly happy right. to vote for Donald Trump. You can't imagine a lot of them saying, you know what, Hillary Clinton, or I suppose on the Republican side, you know, suddenly saying, hmm, John Kasich, we want to throw our party into turmoil is not something you imagine a lot of them would say. I'm going to channel Sam here, I feel like. Okay. Here's my thing. <laughs> like Sam. No, but I mean, I've been reading all this and thinking about it. And I feel like if you're so worried that Donald Trump would fundamentally threaten American democracy, 
then I don't think your approach should be to undermine American democracy because that's what this would be doing. That's yes, yes, the Electoral College has rules that it doesn't have to technically do it, but that's not how it's played out. In every election since we've been doing popular votes, which you know took a little bit to kind of get up to speed there, the Electoral College honors how its states voted. We don't elect president based on the national popular vote. That's not the rules of the game. By the rules of the game, winning the states to get to 270 votes, Donald Trump was fairly elected president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, if you want to talk about a rigged system, this would actually be a rigged system. This would be telling the millions and millions of people who voted for Donald Trump, whatever. This would be telling someone who fairly won the process. So for all the talk about how Donald Trump not possibly not conceding the election would would undermine democracy, you know, Pulling the rug out from from last month's election in the Electoral College would be a nuclear bomb to American democracy. Sure. Imagine if if Hillary Clinton had won the electoral vote and then folks who were worried that she was running a child sex ring in a pizza place tried to persuade the electors that uh, she shouldn't be in the White House and how, how all those millions of Hillary Clinton voters would feel about that process. Well, and Donald Trump, he did not win the popular vote. Uh, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by an increasing number. It's up to like something like 2.6 million votes that she got more than him. But Donald Trump won by the rules of the game as the game is played. Correct. And and the best comparison, the best way to make sense of this that I've heard in the past, and and even earlier this year, I was like the lone electoral college defender, I feel like, in terms of, I I, I think it's a better way to elect. But but that's here, not here, they're there. There are times in the World Series where the team that wins the World Series scores less runs over the course of the entire World Series than the losing team. Uh, and I think that might have actually been the case with the Indians and the Cubs this year. Sometimes it happens because you, you, you win a game 10 to 1, you know, and then you lose the next three games by like a 2 to 1 score, and you're down in, in what counts, which is the game's won, even though you've scored more runs. Hmm. Did I lose you on that? Or no, 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 I like baseball. No, no but yeah, I think you should have said fewer rather than less. Fewer. Exactly. You know what? You Sorry. are you are one step ahead of the NPR listeners who would have emailed and tweeted so don't that. bother writing in. We've already corrected that. <laughs> okay. Boom. Well, we have one last email from Stephanie who forwarded an email she'd gotten from the Donald Trump campaign offering a collectible Make America Great Again Christmas ornament for $149. It is in the shape of a Make America Great Again hat. Uh, I don't know if it is made of solid gold, but that is a lot of money. It is. It is um, mm. brushed with gold because I got this text as well. Oh, OK. <laughs> there you go. There is gold involved. Yes. Brushed up against gold. Is that what that means? What I'll pull up the text as we talk about Put in this. proximity to gold. OK, yeah. so Stephanie wrote, hey, NPR politics team, happy holidays to you. On the subject of holidays, can you explain why I'm getting emails like the one I forwarded here? I've gotten at least two Trump campaign emails post-election asking for money for a recount defense fund or a first hundred days strategy and now emails trying to sell me ornaments and tumblers what is going on why is trump still fundraising thank you for your hard work stephanie well as we said uh, the trump campaign is still a going concern and can continue to be a going concern eventually uh, he could he could move this money into a re-election effort four years hence or to campaign for some other office uh, that said, I think if you have $149, you might want to check out the NPR gift shop online. And we have some <laughs> lovely holiday gift ideas as well. And I feel like, so I just pulled up the text here. Uh, I can read it. Black Friday sale. We've created a collectible Make America Great Again Christmas ornament in the shape of the classic red MAGA hat. Finished with, or is it MAGA? 
Make or is America it MAGA? MAGA sounds like the Magi that came with Frankincense <laughs> and Christmas theme. I think it's got to be MAGA because the G, the G yeah. is for great. great. MAGA. And it's, it's finished with 24 karat gold. So it's a red hat with kind of the, the golden ornament hook and some gold striping. And they were not lying when they said it was a sale because I was offered it for $99 as opposed Whoa. to 149 That was only on Black Friday. So you missed yeah, a chance. Yeah. You could take your chances and wait and see if they drop the price again as we get closer to, to Christmas Day. Oh, like the New Year's Day sale. We, oh, yeah. you know, in my family, we always bought the Christmas tree on you know maybe Christmas morning <laughs> or maybe the day after. You could really get some bargains. <laughs> Okay, that's the mail. And thank you guys for writing, especially the notes that have come in about our colleague Asma's episode this week on covering 2016 as a Muslim. We are making sure that she sees your emails of support. A lot of you took time to write her, and we really appreciate that, and I know she does too. Okay, time to end the show with Can't Let It Go, and we all share one thing we cannot stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. Scott Detrow. Yes. Yours is from your first week covering Congress. That's right. This week was like Biden-palooza on the Hill. (laughs) Joe Biden. Joe Biden, uh, outgoing vice president and really like a creature of the Senate in a good way. Of course, he left the Senate. uh, You know, he was elected to the Senate in 1972. He actually was not old enough to become a senator when he was elected. (laughs) You have to be 30 to be a senator. He was 29 on Election Day. And a couple weeks later, he turned 30. So he's one of the youngest senators in U.S. history. He spent decades on the Senate. and even... grandson in, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> something like that. I think he was, there were a couple people who just happened to be a few days younger than him, but he's like the sixth youngest senator in U.S. history. Nice. But, uh, even and not he... anymore. But not anymore. <laughs> but even though he left the Senate uh, in 2009 to become vice president, he still kind of never left because the vice president is also president of the Senate. So anyway. Um, they, uh, it's their last week this week, so they've been doing a lot of goodbyes for, for people who are outgoing, and they had a really big ceremony, uh, saying goodbye to Joe Biden. That was really genuinely touching because you had members from both parties, uh, talking about their relationships with Joe Biden, talking about how they went way back. A lot of them talked about something that you've seen Biden talk about when he kind of gives speeches or interviews, and that's that he's always tried in his career to, even though he disagrees with people, to not disagree with them as a human being, to not question their motives, to not think that they're liars or bad people or whatever. And you could tell by the way Republicans talked about him that they had seen that in him too. So it was really nice. But but what actually stood out to me was a couple days earlier, there was another tribute to Biden. Uh, they, they were passing this big spending bill that, that spends a lot of money on, on different health care things. Parts of it are controversial, but the White House has gotten really behind it because it spends a lot of money on cancer research. Oh, and Joe Biden has his cancer moonshot that he's been working on talking about since his son, Beau, died. That's right. About uh, a year, year and a half ago. Yeah. Uh, and, his, and Beau Biden was a rising political star himself, attorney general of Delaware, was probably going to run for and probably be elected governor of Delaware this year. So Biden was presiding over the Senate in his ceremonial role when they voted on this bill. And uh, Mitch McConnell, and it seemed like it might have been a surprise to Biden, uh, announced that they were going to rename the part of the bill with the cancer funding after Beau Biden. And Joe Biden got really emotional. And he could hear it in his voice when he was doing the procedural stuff that he was really touched by this. And as the vote was happening... All these senators, Republicans, Democrats, all went up to Joe Biden. They kind of swarmed him at the rostrum. And you could just tell, like, a deep bipartisan affection. And especially after covering the campaign this year, where that feeling was not really in the air, (laughs) it was a really nice thing to just kind of sit in the Senate gallery and watch this. 
Well, and Joe Biden, you know, he when he entered the Senate, between the time he was elected and by the time he entered the Senate, he had had this terrible family tragedy. Yeah. Where yeah. his wife and one of his children... His daughter died. His daughter died, and then his two sons were gravely injured. Yeah. And that included Bo Biden. So in some way, like, the Senate... The Senate has been part of Joe Biden's life and, and recovery from tragedy. So when McConnell was giving a speech to him, he said, you know, through all of this, Joe Biden is unbowed, unbroken, and unable to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to go next. Fact check, true. Fact check, true. Yes, definitely true. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm going to go next and uh, talk about Time Magazine. Now, I feel like I am taking up the uh, Sarah McCammon <laughs> ceremonial can't let it go. Uh, because uh, she first brought up Time magazine uh, back in August when Donald Trump was on the cover. Um, that cover uh, was called Meltdown, and it had sort of this orange face that was beginning to melt on the cover of Time magazine. This and- was a time shortly after the uh, Democratic convention when when Donald Trump was sparring with the Gold Star family and and various other sundry controversies that sort of continued through the month of August. Um, And but here's the thing about Donald Trump. Donald Trump loves Time magazine and he loves to talk about himself being on the cover of Time magazine. We've been on the cover of Time magazine so much that becomes routine. You know, Time magazine a couple of weeks ago, they did a cover story that this is a movement. This isn't me. I'm a messenger. Now, you have to say, we've been on the cover of Time magazine many, many times, and it's really about the movement. We've been on the cover of Time magazine many, many times. <laughs> many, many. In the last short period of time. Well, and indeed, he was on it again October 24th. It was total meltdown, and the orange thing was just basically like a little melty hockey puck. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But this week... Donald Trump is once again on the cover of Time magazine as Time's Person of the Year. And it seems like because of this fascination with Time magazine and the way he's reacted in previous years when he wasn't Time's Person of the Year, that like it seems like it could be a coin toss for Donald Trump of which was the bigger accomplishment, being Time's (laughs) Man of the Year or being President of the United States, (laughs) because it seems that important to him. Yeah, well, he did like a like a tour he like came out and actually talked to the press in the lobby of trump tower on the day he he got the honor uh he called into the today show all around being named times person of the year mm. um donald trump also on this cover became the latest person to have the the m of time magazine sort of protrude from his head in a way that looks a little like devil horns but he's not the only one hillary clinton had it i believe barack obama it like a it's an long, equal opportunity M. A, a long line of people have struggled with this M protruding from their heads on the cover. Scott Horsley. <laughs> <laughs> what can't you let go of? Uh, well, this uh, I, I've been holding on to this for more than a decade. Before I was a political reporter, uh, I used to cover business. And back in the mid-2000s, I reported on a very successful fast food empire. Uh, that was run by a guy named Andy Puzder, and it had just introduced some new artery-busting dishes. There was a milkshake that was made with actual ice cream as opposed to sort of soft serve, and Uh. there was a new monster thick burger. And David Letterman, who was still on late-night television back in those days, hired an actor to play Andy Puzder, brought him out to talk about the new full-fat offerings at Carl's Jr. and Hardee's, and the actor then pretended to have a heart attack. (laughs) 
And the real Andy Puzder was delighted with this. He says, you can't buy that kind of publicity, mm-hmm. which is a sentiment that I think his new boss, Donald Trump, would certainly appreciate. Yeah. All, all publicity is good publicity. I, I got to interview Puzder back then, and I have to say, I never in all my wildest imagination thought I was speaking to the future labor secretary of the United <laughs> States of America. You know, crazier things have happened <laughs> this Not year alone. <laughs> Danielle, what can't you let go of? Queso. <laughs> Queso. Yeah, there Cheese is. Cheese in Spanish? Yes, there is a great, just, I can't sing this clip's praises enough. I was just introduced to it today. It just delights me to no end. It is Senator Ted Cruz uh, just waxing poetic about queso, not just any queso, Texas queso, because have you ever met a Texan who wasn't super pumped about Texas? No. So we have a clip from this. It just tastes good. It, it speaks to the soul. Good queso relaxes you. Look, if che- cheese dip can be served on a Ritz cracker or with one of those tiny Vienna sausages. What? Queso is made to be scooped up with tortilla chips, dribbling down your chin mm. and onto your shirt. One is a visceral, emotional, powerful family bond as you and your kids pour into nachos covered in queso. Uh, the other is party favors at, at an afternoon tea. Now, an afternoon tea? Yeah. No, no. Nachos? No, I think he, he's differentiating between queso and just plain old oh, cheese Oh, cheese. Gotcha. Yeah. Now, what I love about... One of the many things I love about this is that he... There is no joking tone in his voice. He is speaking of this with the same kind of passion that I would expect him to use for supporting the troops or that I would expect him to use for <laughs> patriotism and, you know, respecting the flag or whatever. I don't know. but Truth, liberty, this, this was and, the, uh, uh, cheese dip. The Jesus. Arkansas, Texas queso off in the Senate. Oh, thank uh, was, you for was the, the context. For this. Oh, my God. Yeah, I couldn't so figure he was, out why he was talking about Yeah, there was queso. a reason. There was a queso-themed event. They competed. Arkansas actually beat Texas How on, is that the, on the queso. But uh, so my wife is a former speech and debate high school person, and she saw this clip, too. And she said Ted Cruz right there was channeling his college debate self. And he was like, I need to argue the case for queso. Go. You know, and it's just like. Also, I I clearly did not research this thoroughly enough. I need to figure out the difference between Arkansas queso and Texas queso. Does one have like chiles in it or something like some little like green chili? Actually, knowing our listeners, I imagine one of them is going to. Boy, we should have our own little taste off here at NPR. If only Sam we could get our hands on oh, yeah. some Ooh. Arkansas and Texas queso. And why, the, why limit it to just two states? I mean... I can bring in the Iowa queso. Anyway, that is what I can't let go. Okay, and that is a wrap for this week. New episode on Monday or Tuesday of next week. Until then, keep up with our coverage on your local public radio station or on the NPR One app. Do us a favor, leave a review on iTunes if you like the show. And keep sending us your questions. We will do an episode of Listener Mail soon. Write us or record a voice memo and send it to nprpolitics at npr.org. A reminder, if you've been listening to the podcast all year and have appreciated the show, a great thing to do around the holidays is donate to your local public radio station. Go to npr.org slash stations, find yours, and donate whatever you can. Just tell them that we sent you. That kind of support is what makes our work possible. And many of these stations are in pledge drive right now. You get a year in tax deduction. And a year in tax True. deduction. Okay, I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover Congress. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, been political reporter. And I'm Scott Horsley, White House reporter. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.